was really difficult. That song took so long to flesh out, but the eureka moment for me was literally done in five minutes. I remember just being so stressed out over just the frustration of not being able to write something compelling. And then I looked at my watch and I realized I had five minutes left before I had to pick someone up from the airport. And that pressure sort of laser focused me into just finishing it somehow. It's so hard to explain because the musicians and artists talk about being in the flow and that flow bit me so hard that five minutes disappeared and the song finished. I couldn't explain it. And I remember just sending it over, over to Fletch and I go like, I figured it out. This is it. This is the main chorus. This is what's going to get everyone dancing. I was never more confident in my life. Even now, I haven't felt that confident. Like when Fracture was done, I was like, if this doesn't get us into the big leagues in Australia, I will quit. I know it. I feel it in my core. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 11 of the So This Is My Way podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Morgan Fenn. Now, Morgan is a really old friend. We went to the same high school in Kuching, Sarawak a very long time ago. And he also happens to be one half of Australia's very popular electronic duo, Slumberjack. To date, they have over 100 million streams across their releases, ARIA Gold certified records, performed at giant arenas like Styrosonic, Slender the Grass, and Lulapalooza, and also collaborated with incredible people like Vera Blue, Troy Boy, and Cory Enemy, who happens to be the producer and songwriter for the likes of Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, Will I Am, and David Greta. In this episode, we dive deep into what it was like growing up in Kuching, what it's like having synesthesia, because Morgan can taste music when he hears it, and the journey they went through to break into the global stage. It's an incredible journey with lots of real-life reality checks thrown in. And oh, we also talked about that time when Morgan and Flash encountered a rock set full of real skulls and a bloody machete with the hair of its victim still attached to it. Creepy. But I don't want to spoil it for you, so let's move on to episode 11. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Hey, Morgan, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. Ling Ya, thanks for having me. So we go very far back. Way back. I mean, we were both from Kuching. Yeah. We went to Lodge as well. And I remember that you were the person who would go on stage and do magic tricks <sighs> or you would be composing your own songs. Even back then, you were very much into music. But during my research for this interview, I realized that you were actually exposed to music way before then and you pushed your dad to give you piano lessons. Yeah. So it's a kind of funny story. It's almost narcissistic. So <laughs> I remember I was 11 or 12. I was at a birthday party and there was a boy playing the piano. Very rudimentary stuff. I think he was playing like chopsticks or something. And I just remember all the kids flogging to him. And it's a weird thing to say, but like, I'm not ashamed to feel that. But at that moment, I was like, why is the attention not on me? And I think that that kind of gave me the thirst for being in the spotlight. And then from there, it could have been anything. I just wanted some sort of attention. It's not that I'm not getting attention at home. I just felt like I wanted to do this. And I realized there are many ways to do it. And entertainment 
it's going to be my calling. I sort of almost decided there and then, but I didn't make the big call until a lot later until I realized I can actually do it. So why piano though, of all things to push it at for? I know. I have no idea. It could have been violin. It could have been guitar. It could have been singing. I don't know. I think it was because that kid was playing the piano. So I wanted to play the piano. Although my dad had an organ in our home and he would stick little sticky notes on it and he would write the notation on it and I would just memorize it, not knowing really what it was. And he would sit and play. So basically I was like, well, what that kid did, I can do at home. So I'll start practicing. And my dad was like, okay, well, I will get you a piano if you can play the theme of The Godfather in two weeks. So he taught it to me on the organ. And lo and behold, I did it. Somehow I could, within two weeks, play with two hands. And my dad was like, oh, crap, like this guy can actually play. Without knowing, though, it was muscle memory. I was just watching him repeating it, like rote memory stuff. And then eventually he bought me a secondhand piano, which is still in my house at the moment in Kuching. I think it cost him like 5,000 ringgit. And it was like a brown, surprisingly really good Yamaha piano. And then from there on, we made a deal. My dad was like, you can have piano lessons an hour a week, and you need to make sure you're on top of your grades. So at the time, I was in Chunghua number three. We didn't have semesters or trimesters. We had exams every month. But the deal was, out of those eight or 10 subjects, there needs to be four 100s. It needs to be four papers that scored perfectly. Then I can continue the lesson for the month. And that was a time where I only got three. So he actually canceled my classes for the month. So for me, I'm like, what the hell? Like, are you serious? I said, yeah, like we made a deal. You got to stick to your word. So I studied really hard the next month and I got five more. So it's almost like a trade between my dad was like academic and art. So you got to uphold both. And I kind of just did that throughout my life. It sort of became a habit because of, I know it's a trade-off. And do you enjoy music? Because you started learning, I remember, all kinds of different instruments. And then you end up being in the Rainforest World Festival as well. So what was music to you then? Well, I sort of played the piano and I don't want to brag, but I was pretty good. I was really comfortable with my skill. I got a diploma. And then I realized that there are a lot of people better than me. <laughs> you know, it's like I practice so hard. But there are still kids out there that are kicking my ass, you know? Like, you know, you're really good. No, but I mean, what do you mean by better than you, though? You mean just improvising or just what do you mean by that? Not improvising, just technique. Playing things that are way harder to understand. So to me, the holy grail of classical music at the time was fantasy impromptu, right? The Chopin one. Because of the weird timing and squeezing quintuplets. I was just like, I don't really understand that part of music because to me everything is grid like hence you know dance and more rock and I wanted to learn jazz and I knew I sucked at it so I was like I got to do something where I can carve my own lane where I can be unique in a way that isn't the same to everyone else so world music became like my outlet I realized I could be the educated one in world music because world music was more informal training right so I started picking up the erhu I started playing the didgeridoo I started playing Somalian percussion like the djembe then I started picking up sape as well. Not really good at that because that technique is also really hard to get. But then I realized if I can't be good at one thing, I'll just be okay at many things, <laughs> you know? And basically from there onwards, I became the kid that played everything and then basically formed a band and played Rainforest. That's amazing. Yeah. And then what's interesting for me is that because I saw you doing all these instruments and I always thought you would naturally go into music. But then it turns out that oh, yeah. when you went to Perth, you actually pursued business and finance rather than music. Yeah. So what happened there? 
Okay, so what happened there was again my dad forming a contract with me. We were not like the richest family, so it was really difficult at the time. Like my sister didn't get the opportunity to had the tertiary education. We went to Swinburne for a little bit and Swinburne Kuching as well because Taylor University in Kuala Lumpur was way too expensive for us. And my sister managed to get a scholarship in Curtin as well, but we just didn't have the money, so I had to do a year in Swinburne in hopes that I could leave Kuching. That was always my plan. That if I can't do music and if I want to do music, I cannot be in Malaysia. At least it's not where I want to see myself. I don't want to be the a Malaysian music as much as like it sounds like I'm disowning my country, but, but it's like I I know for a fact that that is not the market I want to be in. I want to be in the mainstream Westernized media. That's where I kind of uphold myself to. So the, the, I knew that you have to be good at the stuff that your music that you're writing. You got to be uh, presentable and image and everything. I just knew step one was to get out first. So the way to get out was a scholarship because we couldn't afford it. Eventually, I got it. So that almost helped financially with leaving Malaysia. So the option was London or Australia, and I chose Australia because it was closer to home. And just in case, quote unquote, when shit hits the fan, I can always go back to Malaysia. And then I just somehow chose Perth because I thought it would be a huge cultural shock to me if I went to Sydney, and I knew that I should ease myself into new cultures a step at a time. So I went to. Two years in University of Western Australia to pursue a triple major in economics, finance, and commerce, and yeah, that was the story of how that happened, and that gave me my permanent residency. Without that piece of paper, I had to leave the country. I had to graduate. So that's interesting that you had this plan that you wanted to do music, but first you had to get out. But then I heard you say in another interview that you were at one point determined to be the best accountant. You were almost going to give up on music. So. What happened then? I realized the reality of life when I moved to Perth. So I remember the first day getting to Perth, I was like, "Ah,、oh, shit! Like this is so different than what I thought." I don't know why. I just thought the second I touched down into a Western country, I'm seeing Hollywood, but it wasn't Hollywood. It was Perth. I'm staying in a shitty dorm. The realization crashed into me, and I realized I had no piano there. I couldn't afford to buy musical instruments, and I was like. Why didn't I learn the piano? I can't even ship that around. So every new place I got to go buy a new one. Then it was like, oh well, you know, what am I going to do? How did I end up doing music? It's because I was good at it. So maybe if I could be really good at accounting or being a financial advisor, I might actually love it. So it's the other way around, like not finding my passion first, but developing the skill set to then produce a. Passion, quote unquote. But I had a friend at the time. His name is Trevor, and he lives in Perth. I'm so grateful for him. He lent me long term his Taylor guitar, and he just goes, "Dude, take this, man." I had two guitars in Kuching, and they were so bad. I bought the cheapest one because we couldn't afford it too. But he's like, "Dude, just take this. I don't want you to ever quit music. At least don't think about it. You know, do it as a hobby first. And then another friend lent me his keyboard. So it wasn't a piano, but it was a keyboard. And then from there on, they sort of kept that almost dying fire alive for about two years. And I think you went to the department store and you bought like Logitech Express and you started experimenting as well. I was like, okay, I can't play music, so the idea was to pretend I was good. So when I was recording, I needed somewhere to edit my work, kind of like Photoshop for models. And I realized quickly, I was like, wait, this is just what recording is. This is basically music production. 
so from there on, it kind of piqued my interest. I went from logic to reason, and then I bought Ableton. And I still use Ableton, and that's my primary audio software of choice. And I think at that time, you were playing at weddings and like the Llama Bar, and then you got an EY internship as well, which you turned down. It was EY, KPMG. I got one at JP Morgan too, and then a potential offer at Bloomberg in Singapore. Because it's like a thing for the third years, you know, your graduating unit, when you top it, you get an intern, summer internship position, and then you finish that and you go straight into a full-time employment. But then I thought to myself, I, I already had my permanent residency at the time. The CPA gave me some points. I'm not officially a CPA yet because I didn't take the papers. And I realized I could stay in this country. So I realized that the thing I could do now is start waitering or do some sort of odd job and try to nail this music thingy. And yeah, I called my dad. I told him I'm going to turn down this internship. And he was like, you are throwing your life away. I was like, no, 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 no. Um, here's another contract for you. I was like, if I don't make money in music within a year, I'll go back to banking. I'll go back to, to, to the corporate world. So my dad goes, okay, fine, deal. And I was like, right. I mean, you still have to be a filial Asian kid, right? Within eight months, we got our first radio play. And then from there on, we started touring and then label deals started coming in. We had managers and I was like, holy shit, like it's, I haven't looked back since. Yeah. But before that, I think the genesis of Slumberjack was really at this thing called the Limelight DJ competition yeah. 2012. So you won it and Fletcher won it the year before. And yeah, mm. how do you even end up in this DJ competition that is so far from playing the piano? So my girlfriend at the time, we were living together as students in UWA. I was still mangling around, making really shitty beats. I just went to like a music store on a weekend and she came with me and she saw flyers. It's like a side DJ competition for the main festival. It's called Stereosonic. And Calvin Harris and Tiesto and all the biggest names were playing. And the winner of this competition gets to open the festival. So my girlfriend at the time was like, why not you just try it? Like, here's a flyer, try it. I was like, okay. and. I had no idea what DJing really was and I didn't have the tools. So I had to kind of MacGyver my own thing. I just bought a couple of small little buttons and controllers and instead of an 88 key piano, I can only afford a 25 key. So that was one hand, I was playing like lead melodies and left hand, I was playing chords on pads and I was playing drums and I was looping things. I created a 35 minute set and I practiced day in and day out. And I remember my girlfriend also at the time was helping me study for the exam I had to ace to get my permanent residency and my internship. So I had two things I wanted to gun and that was like super hard. That was difficult six months there. Eventually I joined the competition and I remember I got there late and because I was the third slot, three hours in. And I remember going to the second floor and I looked down to the DJ that was playing and I realized I'm doing something completely different from everybody else. And that's where I panicked. But then I had to do it anyway. And I impressed the judges and eventually won it. It was crazy. I didn't think I was going to win. So what happened after that? Because you didn't meet Fletcher then. You met him in the 2012 Perth Dance Music Awards. Right? And you were sussing each other out. So what was that like? Yeah, it was hilarious. Because the guy who actually ran the competition introduced us to each other. He was like, Morgs, get here. Like, I want to introduce you to last year's winner. His name is Fletcher. I shook his hand and we kind of like threw some jokes. I was like, oh, like I took your crown. And he's like, nah, man, I said, I've been doing this longer than you. And it just became a joke. And because of that, we took a photo. It was really funny. It's still a pretty iconic photo. 
we took it in front of like an event billboard type thing with all the brands and icons and logos in the back on the red carpet. From there, we thought it was nothing, got each other's numbers. And then four months later, I texted him. And I was like, do you want to make music together? Because I heard that you produce now too. He goes, yeah, I've been producing for a while. I was like, okay, we want to come over to my house. And I got a little tiny studio set up with like speakers and just my laptop. And I was like, you know how to produce, but you don't know music theory. So maybe there's synergy there. And yeah, eventually it became a project we both thought was going to be one-off. So we just called it Slumberjack randomly. We didn't think it was going to be as big as it is. We just thought it was a one-off. We're going to put out an EP, three tracks, and call it a day and go back to our own solo musical projects. And your EP then was very much like a solo, slow emo kind of music. Yeah, it was kind of like lo-fi, hip-hop, experimental, not heavy dance, not pop, nothing shimmery and high definition. It was really low definition. It's almost like some sort of mask for my lack of skill at the time. I kind of used as a guise, as like, it's easier to produce lo-fi music than hi-fi music. So that was kind of our approach. And then from there on, the guy who introduced us, the person who ran the competition started managing us. He proposed that we go over to Sydney for this thing called the Electronic Music Conference. It's like a, any conference, like a doctor's conference or like a accounts conference for like the latest and greatest. So, so for musicians. So we went there, mingled around and met our first label. So that was One Love Records. And at the time, these guys were a huge label in Australia. They were signing guys like Tiger Lily, Kelvin Harris. They were doing Tiesto. They were and this label was also responsible for putting on Stereosonic, the very festival that put on the competition, you know? So it's kind of like just came full circle. And I remember, though, no one liked our music. Oh, no. We brought our USB over and showed it to all the executives of the different record labels. And everyone's just like, I can see potential in this, but it's not our cup of tea. And usually most artists will have a story to come up to come out of that and go like, screw you guys. And then eventually they like your music. But no, they were right. We sucked. And because of that, it kind of just motivated me a lot more. Like playing music and on the piano was very different from producing music. Looking back now, why do you think it was so terrible? I just lacked the skill. Also, I was just naive. I thought because of what I can do on the piano and knowing music theory, I could write a song that could compel people to listen to it. But it's a lot harder. Even now I'm still learning, you know, to write a good pop song is one of the most difficult things. And pop gets such a bad reputation because it's popular. And all the cool kids are like, I don't like popular music. But it's not that. Popular music is only popular because it's catchy. And, you know, writing an earworm is the hardest thing. So basically from that feedback, we hunkered down and had to study. But it's not like when we studied classical music, it's so different. No one is there to teach you about this stuff. So my only teacher was trial and error, listening to other artists, trying to copy them, understanding structure and not really thinking there's one, you know, trying to have my own little blueprint. And eventually we just got better and better. I think you were spending like a year copying Skrillex and then Timberland and just finding out it wasn't your sound. What's interesting is when you said it wasn't your sound, you happen to also have synesthesia. So you yes. interpret sound in a very different way. How did you eventually find that Slumberjack sound? So for me, this Slumberjack sound has to taste like elderflower syrup or like red candy, like a red colored candy or elderflower syrup. I know that the track is in the ballpark. It's about there. Regardless, it could be a soft song that we're writing, like a ballad or like a pop bouncy song or a heavy, sweaty bass aggressive song, it still has to taste like those. And I discovered I had synesthesia with my sister when we were kids, even before music. 
she has synesthesia too, and also the same. So hers is same as mine, which is auditory and taste. So I remember her, we were like six and we were hiding behind the couch playing hide and seek. And we were hiding from no one, but we just hid. We just both hid behind the couch against the wall. And she told me, oh, that TV sound um, feels like rambutan on my tongue. And I was like, well, I don't really taste rambutan, but I can feel it's a round thing with spikes on it, similar. And my sister was like, yeah, it's so weird. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not though, because me and you have it, so everyone has it. Like we were six, you know, I thought everybody had it. And throughout the time, we've just been always talking about that sound. My sister goes, ah, that sounds so sour. You know, that's like a word we would use. Well, I go like, why does that sound taste gooey? And yeah, I didn't realize until I came to Australia. People told me that's synesthesia, you know, that's not a normal thing. So did you find that kind of synesthesia when you went for your first gig, which was actually a live show? Or is it like a process? No, like synesthesia only works sort of when I'm writing music. I think the adrenaline and the dopamine, it's way too strong for me to have any more senses in my body when I'm on stage. The rush is just so high. It's so strong. I don't really taste anything on stage. So tell us, like you were saying that, you know, you produced this EP and everyone's rejecting and then you started still doing gigs. So what was that process? Like, how do you end up being able to perform in front of a crowd when everyone was rejecting you? We were playing for free. (laughs) We have an agent at the time. And this agent is still our agent to this day. He signed us purely on goodwill and faith. He was like, I can see you both are hungry. I'll start booking shows for you. And he wasn't even in an electronic music conference. He found us on SoundCloud on the basis of our three really shitty tracks. And he sent us an email. He's like, are you guys going to be in Sydney this weekend for the conference? I was like, yes, we are. And he goes, I want to meet you guys, but I'm not a delegate in the conference. Would you take an hour out during lunch and meet me at the cafe near the stadium? Or the, the I think there was a museum that we we're doing it in, like a theater. So we did. We left. We went to a cafe and talked to him over a beer. And signed to someone that wasn't usually dabbling in electronic music. He usually signs rappers and rock bands. He's notorious for um, working with uh, Silverchair, which is one of Australia's biggest, most iconic rock bands. So the idea that Fletch and I signed to him was because we realized no one liked this (laughs) at the conference. I might as well start working with people that actually likes me and believes in me. So we signed with him. It was a handshake deal. And then he got us a bunch of free shows for us to put our name out there to eventually sort of understand how the live music business works and what works on the dance floor. That was the important thing is that we were forced to go to the dance floor and play our music and realize that no one was dancing. So it made us ask the important questions, you know, what makes people dance? And to this day, it's still an enigma to me, but I just get better at it. Out of 10 songs, like, Eight would make you dance. Two would make you be like, what the hell is this? So it was a pressure. And it's not common to start off with live shows. Normally you would DJ and then transition to live shows. Live, yeah. So we started live first because we were like, people are going to appreciate us more. It's way cooler because at the time, Disclosure was huge and oh, they're still big now. We kind of modeled our live show after them with the little money we had. So we bought miniature keyboards that could fit, fit into a massive backpack because... We don't have roadies, no money for that. No money for big keyboard because you have a big keyboard when you fly around the country, you have to pay for luggage and, you know, oversized baggage and stuff like that. And we were just poor kids. <laughs> it was just like, we want to have a live show, so we'll buy shitty secondhand equipment and try to perform it. And 
I think our first paid gig was $300. This was probably three, four weeks after we signed. The second we signed, we're doing like a show a week, two shows a week, and then three. And then eventually like, okay, first paid gig, they're like $300. I was like, holy shit, this is way more than I've ever seen come in in a single check, you know? Because I was working for $21 an hour. I'm about to get $150 in an hour. And Flitch and I are like, we need to up our game. We need to start playing live, like even more. And we thought $300 was a lot. So we started buying more stuff and realized the $300 disappeared like that again. And then we then realized like, okay, this is silly. Let's sell the equipment and be financially smart. Now we're both business students. We should know this. This is how you run a business. Let's not be, you know, reckless rock stars, quote unquote again, and manage our money well. So DJing was the cheaper option and also easier. And at the time when you're not big enough, the fans don't care, you know? So we just had to learn DJing from the ground up. And before 2014, when you released Felon, which kind of changed your fortunes, you actually met this person called Mr. Carmack, who helped you to define your Slumberjack sound. He basically was the seed. There was like a, a point in Slumberjack history that I could see was really clear. So, okay, so it was 2014. Mr. Carmack was touring the world. And one of the benefits of being in Perth is that at the time, there wasn't a lot of producers. So when Mr. Carmack is in town uh, from LA, he wanted a place where he can work on music to hang out, smoke weed. It's legal in LA. And he basically hit up um, a bunch of SoundCloud people. And one of my friends from Die High Records, it's, it's a defunct label now, was like, Mr. Carmack is coming to Perth and he wants to hang out. Can we all hang out at your house? And it was really lucky at the time because I was with a couple of friends and we all pulled in together to sort of have like this really amazing penthouse, but for measly money, five of us living together. So two couples and a single girl, and we managed to get a penthouse. And I converted the theater room into a music room because the other guy who lived with me also enjoyed music. So Mr. Carmen came around and I showed him a demo version of Felon. It was terrible. And so he sat down, he goes like, okay, here's what I will do. I'll show you what I'll do. I hope you're a fast learner because this is just how I work. And he showed me a bunch of technique, basically stripping everything I knew about music theory and production that I've learned on YouTube. This guy basically told me to trust my instincts. I just need to up my level. My technicality was wrong, but my vision was correct. So we kept working on that until 4 a.m. I remember we had famous Amos cookies and warm milk because he was so stoned and then he got the munchies. So he started eating and then he left back to his hotel at five in the morning. And then Fletcher came to look at the project again. And then was like, this is something, this is something that we need to capitalize on what we learned today. And yeah, we took that lesson, literally like a two, three hour crash course that defined our sound. So we put out Felon, we uploaded on Triple J on Earth, which is Australia's, you know, one of the Australia's largest indie stations. And they played it on air. And I was so shocked. I remember I was driving on the highway when I heard it and I had to pull aside. I was like, what? This is a prank. I thought my Bluetooth was on my phone. I thought the aux was in, but no, the presenter announced this. And then other DJs in Australia started tweeting about us. And started talking about us. And another guy actually said on air that he had to stop his car, pull over and go like, what is this, you know, crazy music that these kids are putting out? And eventually Skrillex started playing it and the same song and Maddie on, you know, just a bunch of DJs started emulating the sound and playing it in their live shows across the world. And that's when I realized like, okay, I don't have to be an accountant. Thank you. 
So what's really interesting for me is that your first EP went out and it was like, you got 3,000 plays and you've said all these, the felon really got a lot of traction and there were over 50,000 plays. Was it really because of just the music and approach that you guys took? Would you contribute that to the success? Um, I think it was radio. Radio support was important. And also, yeah, like I guess in some ways the grassroots underground support was really important too. SoundCloud really helped us a lot. You know, SoundCloud made it so easy to share your music everywhere else. And it, at the time, it was not Spotify. There was no Apple Music. You just sent a link. You literally could make music right now, finish it, upload it, and be, and be published technically. So from there, we got this underground fan base of just kids, like in Perth, in Sydney, in America. And yeah, it, it attributed to a lot of that. So like radio would listen to our music and go like, oh, okay, so they have a little small cult following. So there must be something there, like a validation from a small group of people. So there has to be something going on there. And also kind of gave me the direction. It made me feel like I'm doing something right. And after you got all that, did you feel like you knew where you wanted to go? No, I still have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of firmly believe in like taking it a step at a time now. I sort of have a plan. I believe in planning for the future, but living in a moment. Paradoxical. How do you leverage on the success of Felon then? Because after that, towards the end, you were appearing constantly on Triple J. You were getting 2.5 million plays on SoundCloud. You were really, really getting a lot of traction. The capitalization was basically just keep writing good music. And it's also like a double-edged sword, you know? When you have a song that successful, your next project could cripple you, like mentally, as a musician. Because you are under this pressure now. But we didn't feel it at the time because social media was kind of crazy at the time. But it's not as rampant as it is now. We're not really looking into validation. We're still kids that just got a radio play, right? And at the time, before Felon was even out, we've already worked on a couple of projects based on the same techniques that we've learned. So then we just start putting them out. And people go like, wow, these guys are consistent. So we'll start supporting them. And words just keep spreading and spreading and spreading. So then you build on that. And then I think the next big milestone for you guys was in 2017, where you released Fracture and you picked on Aria. Charts. So what was the process like creating that and how was that different from your first one? That was different because we started working with Vera Blue and we also worked with Allies. We jumped in the studio together as well. It was really difficult. That song took so long to flesh out, but the Eureka moment for me was literally done in five minutes. I remember just being so stressed out over just the frustration of not being able to write something compelling. And then I looked at my watch and I realized I had five minutes left before I had to pick someone up from the airport. And that pressure sort of laser focused me into just finishing it somehow. It's so hard to explain because it's musicians and artists talk about being in the flow and that flow bit me so hard that five minutes disappeared and the song finished. I couldn't explain it. And I remember just sending it over over to Fletch and I go like, I figured it out. This is it. This is the main chorus. This is what's going to get everyone dancing. I was never more confident in my life even now i haven't felt that confident like when fracture was done i was like if this doesn't get us into the big leagues in australia i will quit i know it i feel it in my core so i picked up my friends at the airport and then worked on it for a couple more just to tweak it and yeah when that ep came out festival slots started rolling in we were playing festivals every week we were so exhausted 
And what was it like that year? I think you also were developing a live show for you guys and you spent half a year on that. Yeah. It sounds like a crazy year for you guys. When Fracture came out and then Triple J put it on high rotation and then I think Nova played it a couple of times on mainstream radio, started playing a couple of times. We started seeing it on YouTube compilations, like FIFA compilations and dancers from around the world were, were dancing to it on YouTube. Fletcher and I like, maybe it's time to revisit the original Slumberjack idea was to be a band. Maybe we can stand out now. So this time we have the money. This time we have the team. We have the resources. So then we revisited the idea. We took six months off, built a tower PC with the right graphics card for it, had like a studio set up, which looked more like a coding lab. It looked more like a lab to design this live show. So mood boards were flying around. Graphics were flying around, and eventually, I was very inspired by Porter Robinson's show called The World's Live Show. And at the same time, I was also really inspired by Justin Timberlake's Future Sex Love Show. And that was those two combinations that created the live show. Yeah, six months of visual work saved us about a hundred grand because if you get someone to create visuals for about an hour, it would easily be six figures. So Fletcher and I are like, maybe we could spend you know three grand to build a computer. And a lot of time to catch up and basically throw ourselves into the deep end with visual animation and work on that with the music. So while I'm working on music right here, on my left will be Fletcher working on the visuals and we'll be trying to put a show together with the catalog that we have. At the end of the six months, we got a call from Splendor in the Grass and they're like, you're on the bill. We know the festival is in two weeks, but you're a late announcement. We want your live show. You're playing 8 p.m. Saturday, which is like the prime time, and it will be broadcasted through Triple J nationwide. I was like, oh, yes, let's go. I was so excited. Because it's six months, do you guys never doubt the fact that you would take off? Because it's a lot of investment you know, in terms of time and resources. No, because I, again, like I said, I was never more sure about Fracture. When this EP came out, I was so sure I could have invested my entire life savings in it. And I could be fine. I can't explain it. I would not tell anyone to do that, though. It could be disastrous. But for me, I was like, Fletch, this is it. Every artist has a couple of milestones. This is our first real one, like the big league. Fletch just okay with it. Yeah, he's like, okay, I trust you. You look so sure. That's the thing. He has moments like this, too. And I have to look at him and go, if you believe in this, then I'm by your side. Because that's the point of synergy. You know. So when I met him, the idea was that like he didn't know managers existed. He didn't know agents existed. I did all that research beforehand already. When I met up with him to write the first Slumberjack crappy EP, that's not even the real EP. I told him we need a few things. We need a publicist. We need lawyers. We need agents. We need managers and a label. And he's like, what are those? I was like, well, you're about to find out. Let's do a lot of homework. So you can't actually do your work without all these people around you? Right now, the operation would be too big. Yeah. So I'm currently trying to finish an EP, which could even turn into an album because I can't leave Australia. And there is talks between me and Fletch that we might want to write an album. It's about time. It's another milestone to take. At the same time, because every song is written with different musicians, you need lawyers to deal with the publishing splits. You have artwork being dealt with, and I can only give my direction. Now I don't have the time to sit down and do art because I want to do music. I can't be looking at graphic work because as much as I love it, that's not my core. And even when you're touring, you have tour managers to book flights for you to route the different cities, the timing. So it's a lot more complicated than people just think you fly to New York for a show. But if I have to go to New York and Utah the next day, and then Tokyo, and then Shanghai, we need to find the best 
efficient, you know, cost-effective route to get us on time everywhere else. And at the same time, you have to schedule sleep as well because this is why a lot of musicians get mental issues like depression and anxiety because you don't sleep well and you get thrown on stage, crazy adrenaline and dopamine, pulled back into the hotel, told to sleep, although you're still like high frequency in the brain, and then wake up and repeat again, you know? So it's their job to balance that for you and you can't do that all by yourself. And what was your way of coping? Like the first time you went on the big stage, what was it like? Wow. Yeah, I do. I, I remember it. It's kind of crude because we're nerdy kids, me and Fletch. Our first big show, I walked on stage about to appear. I could just peek from the stairs on up to the stage, the amount of people. And then Fletch is like, we, we just can't hide behind the decks anymore. And always look down. You have to look at the crowd and be like your favorite pop singer or rock star has to they go on the stage and smash a guitar and all that antics. So we just keep telling ourselves for the next one hour, we imagine we have the biggest proverbial penis in the room. That was the joke backstage. And then from there on, we're like, okay, let's just internalize this. In the next hour, I am basically, I don't know, like David Bowie or freaking Freddie Mercury or Diplo or Skrillex, you know, anyone in our scene. And we kind of just, that, that feeling went from fear and stage fright and anxiety to confidence and then eventually just fun. It just became so much fun to give love to the crowd and then receive it, you know? And was it difficult to tap into that Freddie Mercury in you? Very difficult. I mean, look at us. When we're playing classical music, everyone's keeping quiet. You hardly look at the crowd. You look at the keys. At first, my trick was to imagine everyone was in their underwear. So then I laugh at them. And then I imagine them all being drunk anyway. So anything I say and do will be received with an applause. Because I know how drunk people are. It's quite kind of funny. So I just assumed that. And then eventually, that just became straight confidence. I can go from, like, besides the recent show now, on the peak of our tour before COVID, I could go from the hotel into the car, super calm, walk on stage five minutes before the show to thousands of people, and I'll break a sweat. I could just turn. I remember just going, oh, okay. oh I'm so tired. I had five hours sleep. And then, all right, give me the mic. And then... Slumberjack logo comes on, I know the cue, and everyone's just cheering, and I walk on stage, and I just change into a different person. And what was the schedule like for you at the time? It was hectic. Holy crap. When we did that Splendor in the Grass 2017 tour, we basically did a sold-out national tour into Splendor in the Grass, straight to Chicago the second we were done. We had one night, flew to Chicago, did Lollapalooza, did not sleep, had to take the next flight out to Los Angeles, drive like six hours to Fontana and play it hard summer, and then fly back to Australia again for another show. And then that almost continued, not in that intense three days, but every week we were in a new country. Like how we were in, we we're touring China, we played Bali, we did Singapore for, it was just so, I can't even remember. I, I can pull up our calendar and I'll be like, I don't remember that city. It became such a blur. It was really difficult. And I just remember lack of sleep, constantly being tired. And then you stop writing music because you're so tired. And that's where I, I realized like we can't tour that much. We got to have cycles. But this is a good time for me. COVID is great. <laughs> it's like a forced break. So you guys were performing with Vera Blue and Troy Boy. So those were huge and clearly caught up with you. So is that why in 2018, you guys realized that you were just struggling to create something? new and you had to take a break yeah the idea that kind of spawned like the Sarawak EP 
you know, we were touring so much that I wouldn't say I was like clinically diagnosed with depression, but I was musically depressed. I felt like we were only touring and I wasn't writing the best music. I wasn't proud. I was writing music that was catering to the crowd. I knew what people liked already. At, at, that, t- at that time, I had the experience to know what to write. And also the music industry kind of felt stagnant at the time. And there was just a lot of recycled sounds. Like dance music became, again, it went into another dark ages where everyone's making the same shit. I was like, this is so boring. And, and I also blamed myself for not being able to innovate. I wasn't what the monks called the beginner. I wasn't looking at music with like a fresh eyes. I wasn't doing felon. Felon opened my eyes, right? And oh, then this became my normal. Fracture opened it again. And then it just stayed stagnant because we started touring so much off the success of Fracture. We were on a tour bus for three months. I lived in a bus for three months and then another one for two more months, flying around a lot. And then eventually I told Fletcher, we need to just go, like leave LA. This is too much. Like you want to keep doing this long term? I can now see why rock stars go to drugs to go to sleep because they can't, because they're so stressed and anxious about the next piece of art they're going to do. Because most musicians and artists judge themselves off their latest work only. Like you're only as good as your last work. Like at this moment, no one cares about Fracture. I'm only as good as my last EP, you know? So that stress is constantly there. So we realized we had to go back. I just want to go back to Kuching again and sort of reconnect with why I did music in the first place. Kind of find my gratefulness in what I have. I was living in Hollywood, but I didn't feel Hollywood. Almost like a waking up call. All my life, I wanted to leave Kuching to go to Hollywood. And then when I was there, I wanted to go to Kuching. Like, what the hell is going on? And what was it like going to Sarawak? Because you talked about the idea of identity, which I really resonated with. I mean, like, we both come from a really yeah. small town. Our whole lives, mm-hmm. we just want to get out. But then you actually went back. And what was that yeah. experience like? And the experience was kind of like, it's, it's conflicting, right? It's so conflicting because, yeah, like you said, I almost hated it when I was younger. I, I always looked at it like... Why me, man? Like, why am I born in this? Uh, at the time, I called it a shithole. <laughs> but it made us who we are, right? If I was born in the Hamptons, I probably would be a very different person. But I was like, why put talented people in Kuching just to watch it die? And almost like at that moment as well, like I became, I wasn't religious as well. I was like, this is why there's no God. <laughs> I was like, who would be so sick as to put like talented people? There's a lot of talented musicians in Kuching and I still suck in Kuching, you know? But this time going back, I kind of used it as a utility to reconnect with myself as a kid, to realize how good I have it. I remember sitting in my old bedroom where I was trying to, you know, play didgeridoos and like play the Urhu. And I realized I sat in the same chair that my parents had never threw out. And I just meditated there a little bit. I just sat there and realized like, I still like music. I still love it. We were touring so much that it felt more like a job than a passion. It kind of turned into that. And going to Kuching made me realize I've worked my entire life for this. This is just a reality. I just got to get good at it and manage the expectation a little bit better and take care of myself. So started like eating better, sleeping better, meditating, drinking more water, exercising, reading, like, you know, self-care stuff that you see on Instagram so much that I used to loathe. And I realized like, you know what? Fine, fine. I'll do it. And then it, it kind of helped. And then that's where Sarawak was written. We went there for eight days. Do you have a vision in terms of why you were going there? Like, I'm going to be there for eight days. This is what we're going to be doing. We didn't really decide that until it was really last minute. We just need to leave LA. We'll go back to Perth for a little bit, pack our shit and go back to Kuching. And Fletcher will come with me. And then we're like, 
why not turn this into an experience? Like, why not not just sit down and relax? Why not we fly a, a video journalist come and document the whole thing while we're writing and while we're kind of finding ourselves and the experiences that we go through while crafting this EP, recording the sounds. At the end of that, we're like, wow, we have music. So that became the Sarawak EP. It went through different names, but we decided to call it what it is. We wrote this in Sarawak, so Sarawak EP. And I think Sarawak EP also because you collect like the sonic impulse from Fairy Cave to use. Yeah. Yeah. So the Fairy Caves, we pop a balloon in the cave. To, it's called an impulse response. So um, we got a mic that was capable of measuring the milliseconds of reverberation. So the second it pops and the, the second time you hear it, which is the reflection. And not just the time, but the texture of it. And you can import that into a computer and reverse engineer that. So then I can now record every sound in a virtual fairy cave. Also, the song we have with uh, Ikali called Closure, that had the gamelans and the gongs in it, in the longhouse, in the beginning and the end. And that always inspired the melody. We sort of heard that melody there. Just a bunch of uh, percussions are just peppered throughout the EP. We didn't really sample the sape. We did. And as much as I like it, a lot of people tell me this. Um, and I know this might piss a lot of Kuching people off as Sarawakians, but Sapit just, I, there's nothing I can do about it. It's, I can't put it in an electronic track. It's a beautiful instrument, and I think it should stay that way. It should stay as an acoustic haunting lute and not be bastardized and butchered into an electronic track. A lot of people ask me to do it, and I refuse. I, I tried, and it doesn't sound pleasant. It does both genres and instruments a disservice. Some people or music are just not meant to intermingle. So I kind of had that executive decision they made for the world by myself. Is it the first time that these kind of unique sounds were actually heard on the world stage? Yes, actually. People ask us of like the percussion sounds and the jungle sounds. And I think the texture was still quintessentially Slumberjack. A lot of people thought the Sonics was because of Sarawak, the sound of the EP. But it was just a mental clarity we needed from Sarawak. It was more esoteric. It wasn't very literal. But a lot of people thought we went there, got the instruments, got musicians. But we had to explain to them it wasn't. We needed to get out. We named it Sarawak because it was completed there. We took some of the records that we had and tried to find some solace in not having to tour. LA was super expensive. Kuching is so cheap. We were basically kings when we were there. Our money went so far. So there was no stress. Fletch was staying in my house and we just wrote music. It was, just, it was awesome. It's a great time. And then you guys also went to the longhouse. So my godmother, Nikki, she sorted that out for us. Another six-hour drive. That van had no suspension, no shocks. It was six hours of just the worst. And they were, at the time, they were building the Panbornian Highway. So it was just terrible roads. And then an hour on boat on Batang Aya to get to the longhouse. That was the craziest experience. We recorded a bunch of sounds there too. So that, that was where the gamelan and the, the gong uh, came from and there was um the screams and the shrills of like the men when they're doing the Ivan dance and we also were privileged and honored enough to see the severed skulls real ones too not the ones on display in the museums these are real heritage ones kept in a literal rucksack we had to pay the chief of the longhouse 20 ringgit to talk about it <laughs> And he demanded a cigarette as well. Why would they keep the severed heads in a rucksack? Because at the time it was a proud thing, but I think he was really conflicted because he was a soldier and he took these heads for survival, but he was really dark about it. He, he didn't want to really talk about it. We had to coax him and tell him that this is okay. 
this is more for the, the Western world to learn about us and sort of gave him the onus of, if you want to talk about it, you can. Eventually he came around to it. We couldn't touch the heads because it was um, sacred. And he took the heads in the jungle. It was himself and versus the world. I was like, this is really heavy and dark stuff, but what a story. And he showed me the barang, the machete that he used. Oh, wow. And there was blood stains on it, really old, like decades old, super dirty. I didn't want to touch it too. They attached the hairs of the victims at the end of the barang. It's apparently to respect the dead as well. Like you were enemies in war, but then you should respect that and they can protect your future too. It's kind of like this weird, some sort of relationship they have with the dead and their enemies that like, I've taken your life now, you protect me and I'll protect you. And because at the time they're very spiritual. Perhaps we should clarify as well that not every Sorokin is like this. (laughs) I know. When I tell these stories to people, they go like, really, that's your family? I was like, no, no. I was like, it's just because we live in a very eclectic place. Sorok is very eclectic. You have the rich, rich kids, and then you have the tribal kids and everything in between. And how did Fletch find all this? It must have been quite a shock since his first time. Yeah, he thought it was pretty weird. But he's this germaphobe and he's also a hypochondriac. And I remember every experience. I was actually pretty impressed. He braved through it, you know. We went to go to Jankar Falls and it was snake season. There was a lot of snakes at the time, but I didn't tell him I lied to him. Kind of funny. Because if I did, we wouldn't have gone there and he wouldn't have and it would have ruined the documentary. So I told him it was fine. We were caught in torrential rain. There was like a flash flood. I think a week after our shoot, someone died at Jankar as well. Yeah, it was a terrible time to be there, but I didn't know why I thought it was a great idea to go shooting there. And then he had sago worms for dinner. We had anaconda meat. We had wild boar. We had turtle, like the freshwater turtles, snapping turtles, and just a bunch of wild stuff in the longhouse. And Fletch just ate it. I was very impressed. And you also participated in the tattooing as well, the tattooing practice. I did. What was that like? I did. The idea was from our videographer. He was like, I realized a lot of the men had tattoos. Why don't you do it? I was like, oh, I never had a tattoo until that moment. I never wanted one. My mom always asked me to do it. She thought it was a cool idea. And I was like, no, I don't want to be, this is again me disassociating myself with Sarawak. I'm like, why do I need the tattoo when I don't want to be here anyway? I was like a kid pretty young. And then I realized like, well, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe I'll try it. So I got traditionally done as well, like hand tapped, took five hours for both the bunga tarong to be put into my shoulders. And since then I got a bunch more. (laughs) So I kind of like started like a little thing that I like to do now. I get a new tattoo in almost like a new country. And I think the bunga tarong has a specific meaning behind it as well. Yeah. So the meaning is bajalai basically just means that it protects the bearer of the tattoo and it gives us strength to venture away from our home. So the reason why it's on the shoulders is because a backpack, the straps are on those things. So that will give you strength to hold the weight of whatever life throws at you. So that's kind of meaningful to me and almost in a way that like I've come to terms with who I am, just a Sarawakan boy trying to make it out in Hollywood. So why not? I did it. So after that experience, how did you feel and how do you get back into the real world? After that, I just kind of reinvigorated, really. We went back to America. We started touring again. We toured with Ikali and then we had our own North American leg. We announced that as well. We came back to Australia. We did five 
upgraded shows. We basically doubled our capacity from our last sold out show, um, the Fracture Tour. And then from there on, went back out to back out to LA again and, and, and try again. After that tour, we wrote the Black and Blue EP. And it's something that you did with Corey Enemy, who is a producer and writer for like Lady Gaga and Katy Perry. How did that happen? Corey Enemy has been a fan of us since our 2014 days on SoundCloud too. We just never hear about it. Wow. Then I got onto his music in 2016, and this was before LA. I started playing his music and we make sets and put it on radio shows. And then I realized like when I came to LA, we got a tweet and he was like, I just saw that you guys are in LA on you know Instagram or Twitter. Want to come and meet me? I was like, oh, okay, sure. I'm a big fan of your work. We took an Uber. It was like an hour, 30 minute drive from LA to Malibu. And remember the band that used to be really big, Lifehouse? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I went to his house. That was where I met Corey really? Enemy. He had a studio. So Jason, he was actually gardening out in his own mansion. And I was there. And he's like, you guys are Slumberjack, right? I was like, what? Yeah. And I thought he was a gardener. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, man, um, come go in. Corey's inside. And I talked to Corey, not knowing who Jason Day was again. And I'll started talking to Corey. I was like, dude, like, this is awesome, man. Who, is this your house? He's like, no, no, no. It's um, Jason's house. The guy you met outside. I was like, oh, shit. I thought I was a gardener. He's like, no, no, no. Uh, you know the Van Life house? And I realized the entire studio was plastered with platinum records. Wow. And to this day, we know the song, because it's you and me. You know that song? He wanted us to convert that on audio so he can reprint that on vinyl to give to his um, wife. And that's what he wrote it for. And so we had a relationship there briefly and yes it's pretty crazy that was like my first touch with like actual hollywood stardom because you have done all that and it's really incredible and then we soon proceeded into the whole COVID situation so how has that transition been like because i understand you were going to go on a north american tour and the world got slammed with this right at first it was kind of a shock i was like ah shit like i don't know when we're going to recover from this and then i realized it's kind of like a blessing in disguise i thought i was stuck in australia but I'm really lucky to be here because we had our first post-COVID show uh, last weekend in Perth. And we're pretty good with our finances too. So I wasn't really worried about, you know, not playing shows, not having money. But right now, I kind of feel like this is like a forced vacation for me. I get to live my life as a normal person. I couldn't really have like a relationship with you know girls or like my girlfriend at the time we had to break up after seven years because the touring got to us you know so basically like now it sort of gives me like a chance to sort of glimpse at life like a normal person again i was so nomadic i couldn't form deep meaningful relationships with people because i would see someone for two days and then i'm off i'll see someone in new york and then i'm going to shanghai and i'm in singapore like when is his end? So now it kind of gives me like the chance to sort of meet people again and actually connect with my friends and family and call them, have time, have a routine. And now again, after four months, I think, in quarantine, I'm starting to feel like the kid who just wanted to write music again. So I'm really ready for the next chapter. And I think the next chapter could be an album. And I'm really excited for that. Do you feel that COVID's impact will have a permanent influence over what you're going to be doing, just in terms of perhaps relationships and otherwise? Well, I think so. As scary as it sounds, I think so. But what can we do? You know, I think the best skill anybody can have is adaptability and survive. And then from there, you can thrive. So I tend not to think about the future too much now, but we have safety measurements in place. 
I mean, worst comes to worst, right? My dad could be right. I could just go back to doing banking, you know? But, you know, I had a good run for music. But at the same time, things could look better. I'm obviously hopeful for a vaccine. And if I can write an album that's compelling enough, it could launch 2021 into a better year. So this is almost like a good meditative year for me. You're talking about an album. So how do you find like producing music with Fletch while in quarantine? Is it very different from how you were doing it before? No, actually, so we don't live together in Perth, which I think was the key to reconnecting with our past beginner's mind. When we started touring, we started living together, I guess, because we we're flying together, same hotels. And then eventually, as we got more money and we got more prominence in the music industry, the only upgrade was we get two separate rooms, you know? And then we moved in together so we could have more work. We could do more work. And then we've been living to, with each other for like four years now. And it's stressful. Like we have a good relationship. We have a very healthy, balanced work ethic with each other. He understands there are certain personal things I want to do. And when he takes vacation, I'm not like, hey, man, I'm the one working here. It's unspoken. And I'm so grateful for that. But for Perth, we're just like, you know what? Maybe let's try living apart. It's kind of like breaking up with someone, isn't it? But it's not. It's just been a mature conversation. And we just meet up in a studio. So we got a studio in Perth. And that's where the slumber headquarters is. So we go in probably like four to five times a week. And the rest of the time we work from home because solo time is important too for what we consider true, meaningful, deep work to get in the flow. You can't have someone else in the room. You just need to be in solitude, insulated from the world. Not just creating music, but how are you keeping in touch with your fans? Because your work is very much about being in a crowd and creating that big crowd. We started streaming for, I think, the last three or four months. We started doing virtual festivals. We actually set up the live show, have like five or six cameras around, and then broadcast that to the world. I think we've done, I think it's like 10 or 12 since. So it's pretty good considering we've been in lockdown for four months. That's about 16 weeks. We've done 10, one every two weeks almost. So we're still keeping in touch. We have formed a Discord group and a, like a private Facebook group for uh, what we call the Slumberjack Sleepers, which is our fandom. And we talk to our fans there personally. People will upload stuff and go like, this is the artwork I made for you, I, you know, Morgan and Fletch. And we'll comment on it and we'll give them some sort of like a life behind the curtains. Yeah, that's the demo submission stream because we're doing. Uh, yeah, so musicians can also submit demo and let us listen to it, and we'll give them feedback. Also, they are the first ones to get the news. Like, hey guys, we're actually thinking about maybe writing an album. That's an idea we're toying, and everyone's like, "Oh my god!" But you know, they're the first ones to hear it. We want to kind of give back to them because they supported us in this time. So it's a great little thing that we have. And I wonder for those who are very interested in doing what you guys are doing, like. If you had an advice for them, if they want to start today, what should they do? For budding musicians that want to break into the mainstream, like it's really difficult. At first, I used to be a big proponent of follow your dreams because it to a lot of people who listen to this podcast would, would look at my trajectory. They would think Morgan followed his dreams, right? Because he played music in high school. He bartered with his dad to do music and then he just kept doing music. But I think it is ever increasingly important to know that it's more complex than that. I could have been accountant. I could have been a filmmaker. I read this book called Carl Newport, So Good They Can't Ignore You, that book. And I firmly believe in what he says. It's about career capital. So 
if you want to do music, you have to be very honest with yourself that you really want to do this. You know, first of all, I have to ask yourself, are you good at it? Genuinely? It's not enough to just want to be, but are you willing to put in the work? Many people want to be rock stars. Many people want to be professional athletes, right? I mean, the idea is great, but are you willing to put in the eight hours of training Ronaldo put through? Are you willing to go through 14 hours of busting your ass playing piano, producing music late into the night while sustaining a day job? The idea is sweet, but the work is not. It's far from that. It's grotesque. It's ugly. It's a lot of sweat, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of anxiety. I think people just need to ask themselves the hard questions first, because it would be wildly irresponsible for me to tell people to chase your dreams, screw yourself over, because it could have gone differently for me. What if Fellow never came out? What if I never met Mr. Carmack? It's a bunch of luck and trading off time for valuable knowledge, and then hopefully I can work on that and work on something that people like. I think it's important just improve on the skill. If you really want to do it and you commit it to it, like get good. But then surely there's a point where you're not finding that success and you need to turn back and just give up. Do you have advice in terms of how you decide when that moment is? Well, I mean, it's hard because Fletch and I, we realize for the past seven years, that moment is ever so clear all the time. You can just quit and have a normal routine in life. That seems very, very sweet for me right now. A lot of people go like, it's so good, man. You work for yourself. You stick it to the man. You're not part of the rat race. But then I look at them and I go, I want to be part of the rat race. How nice it is to wake up to have a routine and be home at five and a dinner at six. And you have a family. You have people you can come home to. We don't have that. The point I'm trying to make is that it's good to check in with yourself. And maybe the idea that you've constructed in your head is not all that. Like right now, if I really think about it, I can quit but I'm not going to really shed a tear about it. I just get good at the next stuff I'm doing. So it's re- really important. If, if you're not where you are, where you want to be now, then maybe it's time to reassess. But then if you still like you have a little bit more pizzazz in you to try to get the next milestone, fuck it, try it. I would say gamble for it because if you're responsible, you can always bounce back, you know? And for me, thank Christ, my dad made me do and finish and graduate. That is always my fallback. And so for those who know that they want to give this a shot, are there any practical steps that you would advise them to do in terms of like maybe lessons they should take or equipment they should buy? Absolutely. So most important thing, YouTube will be your best friend. YouTube is the best teacher because you're learning from actual people that have done it. I don't really believe in going to music schools. I have friends who run music schools, but you can go to music schools to some sort of give you like a foundation, but I would say it's a tiny foundation. It's like a really thin piece of glass. And then your real skill comes from you finding your own sound, which means you need to start copying all the artists that you want to be first. Literally, outright plagiarize their shit. And you find it's not possible because you always inject your own flavor. You're not a robot, you're a human. And from there, your skill really starts skyrocketing because you'll start asking the right questions while you're copying. Because when you're copying, you realize you can't sound like them. So then you ask the question like, why is my music not as loud, not as punchy? Why is my bass not as firm? You know, why is my synth lines not as epic? And these are the questions that are very important to ask yourself and not ask the teacher because the teacher has his own flavor, right? The mentor, the The school has their own syllabus and music and art cannot be confined into a syllabus. I think it's important to just start now and don't procrastinate. Every waking hour that you have that are free, you need to put it to music now. Accumulate those 10,000 hours. That's what I'm saying. 
And is there any common misconception about what you do that you would like to clear? I think my parents still think, well, not anymore, but they used to just think I just press buttons on stage, <laughs> not knowing that I write my own records. There's a big difference between touring DJs and electronic musicians than your club DJs. We don't play clubs. Club DJs have like a, it's called a residency. You get like a contract for the next six months for a fee and you do four or five hours every night in the same club or three, four nights a week. But for me, ours is more fan-based work. I'm not like a jukebox. People come to see me to listen to my music. So for our live shows now, we play 90% original Slumberjack music now. And the final goal is to play 100% Slumberjack music. Because I want to be a band. I want to be known for my music and not... Like, we're not DJs. We're only made to DJ because it was the only medium at the time to perform electronic music. And is there anyone you happen to look up to that you aspire to be? Oh, tons, you know. They went from idol to friends to colleagues to people we work with, collaborators, you know. There's Alice in Wonderland uh, from Australia. What's So Not is a good friend of ours. Skrillex, obviously, like we met him a couple times. Um, he actually gave us the support on his blog years ago as well. And just like these guys, we look up to a lot. And actually, we started going into, started dabbling in the world of film. So doing game composition and, you know, film composition, doing work on pro bono just to get our foot through the door. Hans Zimmer, you know, Ramin Javadi, who did the um, Westworld and the Thrones. There's another guy called Brian Tyler, who's a composer for F1. He did Avengers, but is also a DJ and electronic music producer. Yeah, he's, he plays under the name Masonic. Yeah, but he's Brian Tyler. So like, it's crazy to see that. So I kind of like, I want to do that. But he's doing this for years. So it sounds very much like collaboration is something that's very, very important for you guys. So how do you normally make those connections? You either could cold email people and hopefully they've heard of you before, or you can meet them at a party. I think that's usually what happens with this is that it's a small step at a time. As your music gets more popular, you get invited to more prominent parties or you get to meet better people and people kind of trust that we can benefit off each other. It's like synergy that you have your fans and I have mine and we can merge that and have bigger fandom and be more successful. So I think it's important to just write good music first. Other musicians need to hear your stuff and also like you, like your work, to be impressed with your work. And then your opportunities will be pretty abundant at that stage. And, and I normally close my interviews with three questions. So the first question is, do you think you found your why? I think I have, but I think I have multiple whys. Why I'm doing music is because I want to leave Earth when I die with a legacy. It's my form of a Horcrux. It's my immortality token. That is my why. I want to make sure that I am remembered. As narcissistic as it sounds, I feel like everybody wants to have an impact on the world. And I think this is my little contribution. Just good music, I hope. So that kind of ties into my second question, which is what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Good music, great work ethic, and just a hardworking musician. Great art. What are the most important qualities you think people should have to succeed in your field? <sighs> Being able to filter out what's not important and what really is. That's a skill to have. Also, the skill to be able to learn. I think we're not te taught that enough in school. We're taught to study and remember stuff, but we're not taught the skill to learn. Like how to learn is an important skill that people should have in any field that they want to be in. Because true life starts after university. 
you know, at the time SPM, I thought that was the biggest thing, but it's not. If that stresses you out right now, you're listening, don't worry. Really, it's not really that big of a deal because your life can get better. It is it's, a C in biology doesn't mean you can't be a biologist. It just means you're not doing good in standardized biology. And what is the best way for people to connect with you and follow what Slumberjack is doing? Instagram at Slumberjack Music and Twitter is just Slumberjack. And I'm sure if you Google Slumberjack dance music or just Slumberjack, you'll see us. Apart from the Canadian camping company, so annoying. But apart from them, we're the second one. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Morgan, for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was great. And that was the end of episode 11. The show notes can be found at sothisismywhy.com forward slash 11, which includes the transcripts and links to everything we just talked about. Let me know what you have learned by going to Apple Podcasts to leave a review and also subscribe. And also take a screenshot of today's episode on Instagram and tag me at sothisismywhy and morgan at Music with the hashtag sothisismywhy. If you want to hang out, we also have a private Facebook group to keep the conversation going. And some of our previous podcast guests will also be showing up for a limited time to answer any of your burning questions. To join, just head over to Facebook and look for So This Is My Why. And stay tuned for episode 12, which drops next Sunday because we will be chatting with an Olympian. And she has quite the incredible story. From being someone who is always on the reserve, never in the top 100 rankings, and even being horribly concussed, when she had an opportunity to quit her university, travel halfway around the world to a place where she knew no one to fight for a chance to be on the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team. We talked about that entire journey, the realities of training and paying her own way to the Olympics, what it's like to perform at such a high level, and where she's currently at. It's a fantastic journey and I can't wait to share it with you. So stay tuned and see you next Sunday.